Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. I was at work and my mom called and asked me to come home. And that's when she told me it happened. And it was awful. It, it, I, I, we were standing outside next to the air conditioner outside my mom's home in Centerville. And... Um, it was just the worst outcome you can even imagine. I mean, who would even imagine that? And you don't. It was awful. This week on True Crime Chronicles, we travel to a small town in Missouri. Sullivan, Missouri is a very rural area in Missouri and um, outside of St. Louis. This is Christine Byers. She is a reporter and columnist for KSDK in nearby St. Louis, Missouri, and has covered this case extensively. I mean, it's one of those places where, you know, the roads just kind of go on forever, it seems like, and there's just trees, and there are two-lane highways, and, um, you know, you can easily get lost because everything looks just the same. It's in Sullivan that Mark and Kristen, or Chris, have made a home for themselves. I was able to talk to the... um, sister-in-law of Chris. She said that her brother and Chris were together so often that they never actually called them Mark or Chris. It became Mark and Chris was like their name whenever they were referring, anyone in the family was referring to one or the other one of them. They were that close. They started dating uh, their sophomore year in high school. They went to Principia Upper School in St. Louis. This is Julie Edwards. She's Mark's sister. You know, we just knew that Chris was different from any other girlfriends he had had. Uh, And she just, I don't know, she just made this indelible mark on our family. I I don't know how to put it. It was the right fit. You know, not everybody's right. And um, she was just wonderful. And she lit up a room and she, she just was a really great person. After several years of dating through high school and college, Mark and Chris got married in a small ceremony in Ohio, where Mark grew up. But they got married at my aunt and uncle's house in the backyard, and we had, a, you know, the tent and the whole thing, and it was very, uh, very intimate of the time. That's how weddings were a little different then. Mark and Chris loved horses and were running an equestrian training and boarding property. Chris had a horse. His name was Jim. And so Chris and I, we did a lot of riding together through Queenie Park is a fabulous place. It's just the, well, I'm speaking about 34 years ago or 35 years ago. Um, It was wonderful. And so we did a lot of riding. And it was a very large, um, it was like 44 horse stalls, big place. And they managed that for a long time. And then it was a lot because when you have borders and stuff, you take on a lot of everybody's drama and all their life because they're there at your house all the time. Um, So I think at some point, I don't really know why, but they decided to manage this, um, this farm in Solomon. With a young son, Dustin, now in tow, 
the young newlyweds moved to Sullivan, away from the drama of boarding horses and into managing a new farm. It was fun for them. It was a, a, a new adventure from being um, so consumed with so many people at the boarding stable. Several months later, in July of 1986, Chris was planning a spiritual retreat and had made childcare plans while she was away so Mark could continue managing the farm. So Chris had planned to go on a retreat, um, which in Christian science is known as taking class. Um, and it's sort of, you know, um, a moment in your faith uh, where you're getting really serious about it. And so she was planning to go on a two-week uh, Christian science class. And that would require, um, obviously, someone to look over her son so her husband could manage the farm. So one of her husband's cousins came to their home in Sullivan to pick up her son so that um, she could take her son back to Ohio where Mark was from, her husband, and watch over the little guy. So her cousin drives several hours from Ohio and picks up Dustin. Chris's plans are set. She just needs to run a few more errands before leaving for a trip. As she's preparing to go on this um, two-week class, she, you know, did what most people would do when they're preparing to go out of town, which is running errands, and, um, you know, going to the grocery store, going to the gas station, um, and doing all those sorts of things. Later in the day, Mark returns home, finished with his work. He walks in the door, fully expecting to see his wife making final preparations, but she isn't home. He gets home, and he finds their TV is still tuned into a Wimbledon match, which was one of Chris's favorite sports to watch. Um, he found a half-eaten lean cuisine on the table, um, her purse and her car and their truck, their dog, everything was still at the house. Um, and it just wasn't making sense to him. Mark begins looking for her. And after a while, he calls police. Here's Julie remembering the moment she first recalls hearing about Chris's disappearance. I was home at my mom's home and I was working a temp job at an ad agency. And Mark called home at like at two in the morning and he said, mom, is Chris there? And she said, no, you know, she's not here. And explained, you know, he's like, well, I don't know where she is. And, you know, the car was there and the truck was there and the dog was there. Uh, the, her purse was there. It just didn't make any sense. And the reason why he asked mom if Chris was at our house, because my cousin had been there and she came home from being at their house that day. Police begin searching all over Sullivan, and a small army of volunteers comb the countryside on horses and four-wheelers. Four days later, they make a gruesome discovery. So four days later, um, one of the volunteers finds her body in a wooded area, not too far from where she lived. And later it was discovered that where her body was found, the place where she was murdered, and her house, all of this took place within a four-mile radius in Sullivan. She was found basically half-naked, and there were obvious signs of trauma to her body. Based on bruising found on her body and neck, investigators believe Chris had been sexually assaulted and then strangled to death. Not only was there trauma in the family because she had just been abducted and murdered, but then they focused heavily on her husband having been 
the first person to find her missing, basically. It's a natural progression in investigation for the police to always look at the spouse um, because so many times that's what it is, what it ends up being. But at the same time, it was extraordinarily difficult for the family to deal with the fact that not only was she gone, but um, that their brother was being looked at as a suspect. But Mark is quickly cleared and investigators begin looking at others that had been spotted in the areas that Chris had been last seen in. Tips started coming in right away about a guy um, who whose name is Kenneth Avery Jr., uh, who had been seen sort of stalking her during her errands, uh, following her in the grocery store, seeing her at the gas station. Um, and so I guess that around that time, you know, it's a very small place. And he was recognized by witnesses and um, told the police that he was following her. Police suspect Avery. They even arrest him on suspicion of murder. They hold him for the maximum time allowed, trying to build a case around him, but are unable to present anything concrete enough to officially charge him. I was told he was arrested, and because there wasn't enough evidence, you can't hold someone for more than a year. And the prosecutor at the time was not willing to prosecute him with the lack of evidence. I remember hearing about DNA the very first time I was at a a meeting, and I was like 24, so like the next year, and DNA was just starting. So there was no way to prove that this man did this. They just did not have the evidence they needed to charge Kenneth, and it just sat there um, for all these years. Kenneth Avery is released, and the case goes cold. Almost 35 years pass with no answers until this past year when a cold case unit begins digging back into the case. This new task force that um, the sheriff and Franklin County put together, a cold case unit, and they worked with the um, attorney general for the state. And as unlikely as it sounds without some sort of DNA evidence, this case cracks wide open. A witness to Chris's murder comes forward. She saw him assault Chris and kill her. And that for all these years, she was absolutely terrified to tell police or anybody what she had seen. Um, And Julie Edwards, you know, I, I asked her, I said, you know, how do you feel about someone that could have said something all this time? I mean, are you kind of upset about that? And she said she really wasn't because she said that just goes to show you how much fear this man was able to put into this person who witnessed something so awful to stay quiet for this long. The person who had come forward was threatened that she would die if she talked about this to anyone, and she disappeared for quite some time. I don't know the timing now and what's going on now and how that's become relevant or if they feel that her... uh, Her confession, so to speak, was enough evidence to arrest this guy, but finally they did. And and I want you to to know that our family's biggest concern has always been that this man would do this to someone else as well. Um, How horrible, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about him other than he's just a piece of garbage to me. (laughs) One of the prosecutors on the case said, you know, sometimes the passage of time is what's needed in these cases, especially when a witness is crucial, like apparently is the case here. 
um, because time had eased her fears, essentially. And it was just a matter of them finding her and asking her at the right moment. Um, and she was willing to say what she saw. Kenneth Avery is arrested decades after being the initial suspect. With it, potential final closure for Mark, Dustin, Julie, and the rest of the family. But also frustration that Avery was able to walk free and live his life for so many years. He he did this to Chris and went all this time without uh, committing another crime. Well, as far as we know, he was never caught for committing another crime. Um, so he was a free man at the time of his arrest, uh, just and still living in Sullivan. Investigators have been able to piece together more of the timeline of how Kenneth Avery abducted and murdered Chris. And they are led to a nondescript cabin within a couple of miles where Chris's body was found. So the murder scene is apparently a cabin in the woods. And they found that out from the witness who had been there when this happened. And I went down to Sullivan to kind of retrace all the steps here and, you know, get a sense of place and that. And, you know, one of the things that the sheriff's department told me was the people that are living in that cabin now um, had obviously no idea that this occurred. And um, all of a sudden, one day, the sheriff's department comes and knocks on their door and, is, and says, you know, we have reason to believe this was a murder scene 30 years ago. So can we just kind of come in and look around and, you know, collect evidence in that? So they believe that the murder took place inside this cabin and that she was, her body was later dumped um, not far from it in a wooded area as well. Kenneth Avery has been charged with Chris Edwards' murder. Basically, because of COVID right now, um, everything's at a standstill in the courts. There are no jury trials going on because juries aren't being seated right now. So he is, but he's still being held in jail um, because on a homicide charge like this, usually they have no bond or a very high bond. Um, and so he's just sitting there awaiting trial. Here is Julie on what she hopes to see come out of Avery's trial. I want him never to get out of jail. You know, I, I, I just want him not to hurt anyone else because he did this to Chris and then he threatened this other woman. Who knows what he's done? You know, I... I don't want to be stuck in this and have this be a, some sort of legacy that everyone's known us about our whole lives because Chris wasn't about that. Chris was about love. She's a very religious person and that was love to her, her religion. And she just was exuberant. She bubbled. And it wasn't because of natural beauty or anything that was surface. It was all inside. She had effervescent love and that's what she was about. Mark and Dustin are, of course, still deeply affected by Chris's murder and generally stay out of any discussion of her case. It's interesting. Um, you know, Julie spoke for both her brother and her nephew because they were too emotional still all this time later to talk about this. this is a very old wound for this family. Um, you know, Mark was deeply, deeply in love with her and... Um, Obviously, Dustin was their only child, and he was only two years old at the time. So, um, but ever since this happened, Mark did end up getting remarried. Um, and Dustin is now living in California. And they still, you know, obviously get together as often as they can, but they're living in different states, and the family's kind of spread out. Um, but they are all still pretty close. 
The past several years have seen a large number of cold cases finally solved because of DNA genealogical evidence. This is one of the rare cases where it's cracked because of a witness finally stepping forward to tell the story of what they saw. It's rare. It, it just simply is rare to see a case that is that is this old not get resolved with DNA. I mean, that's just always the typical thing. But that wasn't the case here at all. This came down to finding the right person at the right time who was willing to explain and, and talk about what she saw and what traumatized her so many years ago. Um, and they're obviously trying to protect her as much as possible. So it's very mysterious also exactly, you know, where what happened to her? I mean, was she so traumatized by this as well that, you know, her life took a different course as well? Um, it's hard to say. And so we don't know really anything about her. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, it, it is incredibly rare to see a cold case resolved in this manner. Even with potential closure just around the corner, Julie says she just misses Chris so much. I think the biggest thing that I would like to share is that she was our person. She's just not a story. And she is still loved to this day. She's our person. <laughs> and she meant the world to us. And I just hope that love will conquer, that other people don't have to go through this. And I know that it's flippantly as easy that people pass away and they get killed and it's not flippant. It, it's a stain on your life forever. So. I just hope that people know that Chris was about love and she wasn't about this man. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Reed Redman. Spencer, we have done a few cases on True Crime Chronicles that are decades old or go back, you know, quite a while. But this one from 35 years ago, as you make very clear in your story, to have someone come forward after all this time is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's really rare. I mean, it's it's rare that you have someone that either suddenly re remembers a piece of information that cracks the case or, you know, um, comes forward for some other reason. It's it's a really rare occurrence. It's fantastic that this person has finally come forward to break this case wide open. And there's obviously a lot of information about this witness that I think we'd all like to know. It's not public knowledge. We don't know why he or she was there, saw something, what happened, but uh, the witness mentions being threatened, right, by the killer and, in fact, you know, told not to come forward with information. Yeah, I mean, we generally know that she, we, we know that it is a woman, um, was in the general area and and saw this crime being committed. We don't really know any other context except for this person was there, saw this crime committed, and then was immediately threatened, saying that, you know, she would be killed if she told authorities what she had seen that day. One other thing that sort of makes this story unique is that oftentimes when you have a case that's this old, three plus decades old, you don't always get to hear from the family members of the victim because maybe they're not around anymore or maybe they've, you know, they just have stopped giving interviews. But um, hearing Christine's interview with Kristen's sister, it was moving to hear her talk about her sister after all these years even. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you're totally right, Reed. And it it's... um. It really reminds us that there's a, a very emotional human side of this. And, you know, obviously, uh, Dustin and Mark don't speak about this case after 35 years. And uh, it was really 
uh, wonderful to hear from Julie and, and to hear about that they still keep Chris's memory very much alive in their family. The other angle to this story is that they had a potential suspect all those years ago, 35 years ago. They arrested him, but the prosecutors did not charge him with the crimes. Yeah, and it's 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 sad and and some you know ironic that it ends up being that same person that they are now charging with Chris Edwards' murder. But you know, again, uh, just to reiterate, uh, he was innocent until proven guilty back then, and he is still innocent until proven guilty today. Um, but we'll just have to see what what the prosecution can uh, present in court. So it sounds like there was some evidence pointing to this suspect potentially back in the '80s, but it is. For sure, this witness that put it over the edge, so to speak, for prosecutors to come in and say, we think we have a case now. We're actually going to charge him now, whereas they couldn't back then. Yeah, I mean, there were multiple witnesses, um, according to police records, that you know had said that Kenneth Avery was in the general area and had approached Chris Edwards and was kind of following her around. But, you know, uh, even though that's very blatant, odd behavior, odd behavior um, doesn't you know, get you charged. And it was the witness coming forward that gave that final piece of evidence, that nail in the coffin, so to speak, of being able to actually rearrest him and charge him with something. All right, Spencer, thanks for bringing us the story this week. We will be back next week with a new case. Uh, Reed, in the meantime, we have a daily show we should mention in case our listeners have not heard all the news. Uh, what are we doing there? Yeah, our daily show is called The Daily Crime. You can find it wherever you're listening to True Crime Chronicles right now. Uh, we put out an episode every day, Monday through Friday. So if you finish this episode and you're looking for more, that's where you can find it. All right, check out The Daily Crime. Spencer, I know we have new listeners every week and they need the following information. We have uh, 5,400 members in a Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault. And uh, we would love for you to join it and discuss this case and others like it. All right, for True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson along with Spencer Brudig and Reed Redman. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.